stage in our spiritual development called childhood. You'll see some pictures in just a moment on the screen of some uh, children. They were taken at last year's Dad Fest. You know, we're trying to create this um, safe environment where our children can flourish and grow. So we have a new vision statement that we exist, help me now, to be disciples who make disciples who live and love like Jesus. We're intentionally developing these relational environments where discipleship can happen. Now, many have wondered, what about the shift? Why the shift? Well, Christianity, becoming a Christian, can mean anything in our culture. We have Christian books, Christian music, we have Christian schools, we have Christian clubs, but the term Christian was only used three times in the entire Bible to describe the Christ followers and those from the outside on the insiders. The term that Jesus used was the term disciple. So Christian is well-defined in our culture, but you can be a Christian and practically believe anything, right? You can be a Christian and have practically any lifestyle. There are Christians on both sides of every issue. But the word Jesus used, disciple, has a very clear meaning. So we're trying to get at what it means to be a disciple. We're talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, when you grew up, and I didn't grow up in a church, but you may have grown up thinking that Jesus had his 12 disciples. So the disciples were limited to the 12. But if you think back to what Jesus said, his last words, go and make disciples. He was speaking to his disciples about their charge to make disciples. And that's what we're about as well. So let's go now into another graphic that shows the discipleship process. There are five stages of spiritual growth. And for those of you who like structure, this is what we'll do for a moment. We'll talk first of all about the beliefs or values, the attitudes of the stage. Then we'll talk about phrases that are part of that stage. And then the needs of people in that stage. Beliefs, phrases, and needs. So let's begin with the first. The first, it's coming up, I think. The first, or if you have a circular chart, you can see the first stage is that of being dead. There are certain traits that characterize a person in the stage. The first is of a disbelief in God. They are dead. There is no life. There is no vital signs. Jesus didn't come to make better men more better. He came to make dead men come alive. A disbelief in God we refer to as atheism. Or a questioning the belief of God we refer to as agnosticism. Or a belief in a God that's different from the God of Scripture is something very current in our culture. I remember a couple of weeks ago watching, regrettably, the Grammys. And one scene from the Grammys was Queen Latifah saying, we all believe in the same God as she was um, ministering this wedding ceremony. We all believe in the same God no matter what we call him. See, uh, some believe that there is one God, but there are many ways to get to him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sort of like God is this huge mountain, and there are many roads to the same destination. All the roads lead to the true God. I was out this week in Arizona, and we traveled up to Sedona. And Sedona, if you've never been there, is a beautiful place. But it's also, in their literature, they refer to this harmonic convergence. 
And one of the mediums there channeled that if you take off your shoes, there you'll feel Mother Earth, her warmth and her comfort and energy flowing from Mother Earth into your soul. Well, it was about 20 degrees there. And when you take your shoes off, you feel the cold rocks. <laughs> now, God made those beautiful mountains and the sun. God is not the sun and God is not the mountain. God is the wind, not the wind. But he makes the wind to blow and he created the beautiful scenes to see his majesty there. Often those in unbelief um, have a profound anger toward God and toward believers. Somebody's tried to cram Christianity down in their throat. Sometimes they've been praying, become disillusioned because God didn't answer their prayers like they hoped. Or they've seen an example of legalism and legalistic and self-righteous believers. They become angry toward God. Now here's some phrases you'll hear from this stage. I don't believe there is a God. The uh, number one response now to what is your religion is none. More and more Americans are believing that there is not a God. Even though the God has given us general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God, and specific revelation of himself and his person, Jesus, and the scriptures, many believe there is not a God. The Bible, they'll say, is a bunch of myths. God is just a crutch to lean upon. If God is a crutch, I definitely want to be leaning upon him. I'm not a Christian because religions are responsible for all the world's wars. I don't need to be saved. I'm just as good as anyone else. Because a good person goes to heaven and a bad person goes to hell. I'm a Christian because I go to church and I'm a good person. I'm okay because I'll be a good person. But if you rely upon your goodness, how good do you have to be to get in? What happens if you make mistakes or have done bad things? Can your goodness outweigh your badness? Can you work your way into heaven? So what does this person in the first stage need? They need a relationship with a mature believer, someone like yourself. They need a picture of the real Jesus lived out in front of them, not someone who is judgmental towards them. They need answers to life's questions. Why is there so much suffering and evil and justice in the world? They need an explanation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is that God himself incarnated into our world, that he went around doing good, delivering people, teaching them, preaching unto them, healing them. And then he went to a cross, though he had never sinned, and all mankind's sin was laid upon him. They put him in a grave, and on the third day, he rose again. And this message of repentance, forgiveness, shall be preached to all nations. That's what an unbeliever needs. They need a clear explanation of the gospel, and they need someone to incarnate love to them. Now, stage two in the discipleship process is what Pastor Dan covered last week. They have, this person in stage two has now stepped into the kingdom. They have accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord, but they don't know much about what it means to be a Christ follower. They're excited about their faith. They are very zealous to share their faith. I can remember being in this stage of just wanting to tell everybody this good news. But they are beginning to begin ch being changed at the heart level. Many are at this infant stage 
and they're converted. They've made a decision, but now because they've not been discipled, they're in the nursery, so to speak. Some of the beliefs and values and attitudes, behaviors of the second stages, and an infant is ignorant of what they need spiritually. What they need is individual attention from a spiritually mature person. You see, an infant can't feed themselves. They need to be fed. An infant can't clothe themselves. They need to be clothed. An infant can't uh, clean up their own mess. Someone must change their own diaper. You see, an infant is in this place of dependency. And an infant is <clears throat> has a belief that they're defined by the culture around them. If they've grown up in America, they've come to become self-reliant and self-focused. Now they're going to need to learn to trust the person of Jesus. Remember Peter? He was out there on the sea, and he'd been fishing all night. And Jesus said, follow me. But first, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter said, Master, we worked hard all night, but haven't caught anything. You see, I, I don't think it's really a good idea. I don't think I'm going to catch. But he said, because you say so. At that very moment, Peter became a follower of Jesus because he said so. Because you say so, I will let down my nets. What in this stage of infancy they need to learn is to hear the words of Jesus and do what he is saying to them. Spiritual infants will hang around the church culture and they'll pick up what Christians are saying and mimic their behaviors and their words. I remember being a spiritual infant, a baby Christian. Somebody would say to me, hey, pastor, oh, I didn't say pastor, I said, R, can you open us up with prayer? And I would say, I'm really new at this, okay? I don't know much about prayer. And so what I'd do is I would try to listen to a more mature Christian pray and try to remember what they said. And then I would sort of like parrot back what I had heard someone else pray. I didn't really know really how to have this conversation, communication with God, because I was just a baby. And I remember going to Bible study, and they say, can you open your Bibles to the book of Romans? And I was kind of looking for this Roman soldier somewhere in my Bible. I didn't really know there was a, a real book called Romans. So I got these little tabs for my Bible. And when they said Romans, I'd find Romans and open up to that. You see, I was just an infant Christian. And some here may just be in that stage of infancy. Here are some of the phrases from the stage. I believe in Jesus, but my church is in the woods. Or my church is at the beach. Or my church is at the golf course. Or my church is at the slopes. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus at the church, but I don't really need people in my life. I want to tell you that you need people in your life. You need to make connections with other believers, more mature believers. You need to have community around yourself. You need someone speaking truth into your life. Some will say, my spouse is my only accountability partner. I don't really need somebody else. You know, <laughs> you, know you can lie to your spouse, but a brother really knows you or a sister really knows you. They can speak some truth to you. For instance, you say, you know, if, you're, if someone asks, you know, how's your marriage? You say, fine. 
But spend some time in your house, you may find out it's not so fine. So what you need is accountability, someone who can speak that truth into your life. So how do you meet the needs of an infant? Well, they need individual attention from a spiritual parent. You know, when you have an infant, you don't let them get out of your sight. And when it gets too quiet, you begin to chase after them, right? When they sort of slipped away. They need protection. They need care. They need to have the Word of God explained to them. And they need to form the habits of a believer. I spent some time recently with a brand new Christian and I began to teach him how to open up his Bible. See, he'd never done that before. And he began to say stuff to me like, Pastor R., you know, the Bible says that Jesus died for my sins. And I said, yes, it does. And it says that Jesus was buried and he rose again. Did you know that? And I said, yes, that's true. And he says, I got this new life in Jesus. And I thought, that's true. You see, just an infant, he's learning these things for the first time. Stage three is our subject for the morning. That's the stage of childhood. Spiritual children are young in their faith. They've grown in many ways. They're learning to understand the Bible and biblical terms like faith and grace and mercy. The Word of God is becoming like a roadmap to them. Their habits and priorities are changing, but here's what they're characterized by. They're characterized by attitudes of self-centeredness. They sometimes can be very idealistic. They're still dealing with their pride or their slow self-esteem. So I'd like to illustrate to you now Pastor R's own self-centeredness. And this is a rather recent example. So Debbie and I were out in, out in Arizona, and for reasons that are too long to explain, but if you ask me afterward, I'll tell you, uh, Debbie was the driver of the rental car, and I was the passenger. And I discovered, driving around with her through the state of Arizona, I don't really like being shotgun. And here's what would happen inside of our car. She would say to me, can you program the GPS to where we're going? Now, if you know me well, I'm not very technical. And I make lots of mistakes and have to start over with the GPS. That's something Debbie normally does. Then she'd say to me, can you get my sunglasses out of my purse? Can you get my purse for me? And then she would say, can you get my lip balm? <laughs> my lips are feeling chapped. And the list went on and on and on and on. And I realized as I was sitting there riding shotgun, I was in this servant position. But my attitude wasn't, what can I do to serve you, my, my, my beloved? I was feeling like, I don't know, I was being kind of put on, like I was being asked a lot. I mean, I wasn't being asked a whole lot at all. And I realized I was in this childhood state of just feeling like, why do you ask me all these things? And Debbie said something like you heard in the play, like, well, you're not doing much. <laughs> I mean, I'm driving. So here's some of the beliefs and values and attitudes, behaviors of spiritual children. They get excited over these deep relationships, which they've not had before. And perhaps you're just beginning to form some of these relationships where you can be honest and transparent, vulnerable with each other. Secondly, they remember who they were as unbelievers and how God has changed them and it's changing them. 
They're understanding now much of the Christian language, but they get disillusioned here because of high expectations they place upon others. They have a lack of wisdom as to how to learn what they're using. They often get too aggressive when they're sharing their faith or too legalistic in their approach to the Bible. Here are some phrases that you'll hear from this stage. I really love my small group, but I'm, fi- I'm just finally connecting to people. But please don't add anybody else to it. That'll mess my group up. Or when people start coming to church, they'll say, you know, tell the people, the new people, to go somewhere else, right? They're kind of... <laughs> or they'll say, I don't really like the sermon today or the music today. I need to go somewhere else where my needs can get met. They're very self-focused in this childhood phase. They sometimes do the right things for the wrong reasons. One guy got into a small group and he said, you know, I need to get busy and do something in the church. And the leader said, why do you need to get busy and do something in church? He says, I just feel like I need to do more for God. And the leader said, why do you feel like you need to do more for God? And they discovered he needed to do something more because he was trying to earn his salvation. God's going to love me if I do something more. I can hold on to my salvation if I do something more. Now, what would have happened if that person in their childhood phase had become a leader of a small group and passed on that which is given to us freely salvation by having to work for it? So it's really important in the childhood phase to grow up, to, you know, to long for the pure milk of salvation, the pure milk of the word, that we may grow up in our salvation. One children's worker, you know how it is when we're, you know, checking in, processing, the line was pretty long. And one children's worker said, I quit. I, uh, I'm done. So the leader said, you know, what happened? Why? And she said, because, you know, this person said to me, she yelled at me. And you see, the leader said, well, you know, it's not good for someone to yell at you. Why did she yell? Well, the line was long. And she said, why did you sign up for for the um, children's ministry? She said it was because in our small group, somebody said, the leader said, we have needs in the children's ministry. And everybody else signed up, so I signed up. She said, you signed up because everybody else signed up? She said, what did you expect to happen there? She said, well, I expected to be appreciated, to feel good about it. You see, what happens in the childhood phase is, because we're so self-centered, we expect that everybody's going to appreciate us, and we're going to feel good about what we do. Let me bring you to reality. (laughs) Sometimes in the childhood phase, what happens is what I'll call being sophomoric like you become a little too dangerous with the information you have and become an authority on all different kinds of things. Sometimes in the childhood phase, menial tasks, like picking up a mop, like stacking chairs, are beneath your dignity. And until we learn that in the kingdom, humility is up and pride is down, we'll never grow into the likeness of Jesus. So let's go now to this amazing book of 1 John and see what he has to say to us about this phase of childhood. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. God had a message to declare that God is light, that God is holy, God is righteous, that God is truth, that God speaks the truth to us. He wants us to speak the truth 
to one another. And there is no darkness at all in God. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and yet we walk in the darkness, do you realize there's darkness inside all of us? If, but if we walk in the truth, bringing the darkness into the light, we have fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you. Now notice here's the pastor's heart of the Apostle John. He calls the followers of Jesus his dear children, his beloved, the loved ones. The truest thing I can tell you about your identity is that when you became a follower of Jesus, you became a child of God, the beloved of God, that God has fond affections for you, that God loves you very dearly, and you're his dear one. Jesus was told before he began ministry, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The truest voice, the voice of God, we hear from above and from within is that we are his beloved. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Do you know that the enemy will bring accusations against you? You are in a spiritual war. But there is one who stands up for you, who paid the entire price for your sin. He is the best attorney, the best advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. Because when our sin is brought to his attention, he makes a defense saying that sin has been completely paid for. He is the righteous one. He is our advocate. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the entire world. Verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. You see, that's what a follower of Jesus is. If Jesus says it, we do it. If Jesus moves, we move with Jesus. If Jesus says to speak, we speak. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anybody obeys his word, that's what Peter had to do in the boat, to obey the word of Jesus. God's love is truly made complete in him, and this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. You see, God walks with us, and we walk in such a way that we live a life like Jesus lived, and we love people like Jesus loved them. Now verse 12, to the very heart of the issue. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. What a child must learn is that their sins have been forgiven. The first stage of spiritual formation is infancy, and then it is childhood. The first step into the kingdom is to realize that I am broken, that you are broken. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be broken is to be aware of our sin, that God is holy, and we've all sinned against a holy God. We have said things, done things we should not have said or done. Now, sin is not your friend. 
That's why John said, I'm writing this to you that you may not sin. The reason is that sin will make you pay more than you want to pay. And sin will take you places you don't want to go. And sin will make you stay there longer than you want to stay. Again, sin is not your friend. Jesus is your friend. Children understand that they deserve to be punished. But one took their place on the cross. His name was Jesus. And children have been forgiven on account of his name. You see, sin brings into our life regret and guilt and shame. And we tend to hide our sin, not to bring our sin out into the open, into the light where it can be healed. We would rather prefer that people don't know our sin. We'd rather put our sin into the dark, into the secret, and hide it in the closet. Now, forgiveness is to have your sins carried away. For forgiveness is to have the weight of sin taken off your shoulder. And all of her dark cousins of guilt and shame and regret. I don't know about you, but in my life, I've struggled with guilt and shame and regret. I've discovered that I can be consumed with some of my own actions, especially the past, focusing on them and kind of enter into a self-loathing mode. Now, not only myself, but I know other believers accumulate such a long list of sins, they can't understand how God could ever forgive them. Locked up in what I call a prison of shame, they hate their past, and they hate themselves, and they seem to be no escape. Not only have they done bad, but bad has been done to them, and now they feel they are bad. They're living with shame. If people knew the real me, I've heard people say, they wouldn't like me because I have so much stuff in my past. As a pastor, I've seen people dying slowly in a tomb of shame. Some ashamed of their financial condition, of how they've spent their money. Some ashamed of their own sexual histories, of what they've done in the past, what's been done to them. Some crippled by the shame of secret addictions, things they don't want people to know. Some suffer with guilt after having been sexually abused. So I've discovered that there is a cycle of shame. We experience something that's intensely painful. We believe the lie that our pain and failure are who we are, not something that's been done to us, not just something we have done ourselves, but something we are. And we begin to experience shame. And our feelings trap us into believing we can never recover. We will end up punishing ourselves because of our shame. There was a man, his name was Peter. And Peter had made a vow that he would never forsake Jesus. If all the others fall away, yet I will not. But there in that night, Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times he failed. Now Peter himself could have lived the rest of his life in shame, being ashamed of what he did, hiding behind doors. But Peter, broken and repentant, confessed his sin, and Jesus Christ restored him. And that's why it says, dear children, 
Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, on account of the name of Jesus. He has wiped the slate clean, for in him we have redemption, in him we have the forgiveness of sins. To really understand your position as a child of God is to say that your sins in total have been forgiven, that God holds nothing against you, that God wants to resolve the guilt and regret and the shame of the past, and it's all in the person of Jesus Christ. A person must humble themselves and realize they are in a childlike position. There's a childlike position metaphorically. There's also a childlike position literally. And what he says of the child is, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Is that something that you know, that your sins have been forgiven? Pray with me. Father, here we sit on a Sunday morning, and it seems as if we're in this vast ocean, and our sins are beyond our ability to count. The debt we owe is beyond our ability to pay. And we cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We must have a Savior. And the Savior's name is Jesus Christ. And he calls us from unbelief. He calls us into belief. He shows us his hands, his feet. He shows us his love. But we hold on somehow to this sin and we punish ourselves. We remember this long list of sins that you've long since forgotten. We find ourselves in a cycle of shame. We've experienced failure, and now we think we are a failure. We've identified ourselves so much with our sin, we've not identified ourselves as your children who you've forgiven for your namesake. So here on this day, Lord, may your people understand what happened on the cross and the power of your spirit. And God, as you reveal to us our sin, would you also reveal the greatness of your love, the greatness of the blood, the greatness of the cross where our sin was paid for. Father, on this day, would you help us to grow? Would you help us to be disciples who follow you and believe the cross where Jesus died? We ask Jesus' name. This is the place where you can be honest before God. You've got a struggle in your heart. It's a good place to come and work it out before Him. You come, we'll pray with you. And if you want to sign your name, there's a place over there to join your name to, I am His disciple. I'm one of His. I'm glad to name the name.